I get the rare treat these days of being with you two weeks in a row, uh, which is fun for me. If you did not realize it, uh, we are uh, closing out a conference that our church has been hosting this week. Uh, many of you were at that conference. Uh, some of you weren't. I encourage all of you uh, to go and listen to it if you were not there, uh, particularly because uh, when, we throw these, when we throw these conferences every year, this annual conference, it's, it's not, we don't view it as a one-week thing, but we view it as uh, the beginning of a conversation that typically goes on throughout the year. So uh, a few years ago, we, we, helped, we hosted a conference on depression and anxiety, and that led to uh, really, well, it's still going on in a lot of ways, but a lot of people uh, being honest with their stories and struggles and, and getting help. And so likewise, when it comes to uh, our topic this year of uh, family, of marriage and parenting and singleness, uh, we hope that enters into um, a conversation here on, at, at both our campuses, um, but here def definitely downtown. And uh, so I encourage you to go listen to it. You can subscribe to that, uh, our podcast, go to the Bluegrass Podcast, and all of the talks have already been posted. And uh, a lot of our unmarried folks attend this campus. And uh, I uh, lectured on singleness yesterday and uh, really put a lot of uh, thought and study into that because I feel like uh, that we have desperately needed something to point people to who are struggling with that. And so that's my best effort. So a shameless plug, if that's the demographic that you find yourself in, to go and uh, listen to that as well as the follow-up panel. But tonight, uh, I, I'm going to try to wrap up the whole conference, the whole theme on marriage and family with the last verse in the world you would turn to for a conference on marriage and family. Luke chapter 14, 25 through 26. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The word of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to open ourselves to the correction and instruction of your spirit. Help us to receive your word with teachability and humility. Help us to confess that your word is good even when it challenges us and presses in on us. Help us to lay before you what is probably the most common idol, not just in our culture, but in every culture, the idol of family. Help us to lay our spouse or the desire for a spouse down before you. Help us to lay our parents and our desire for their approval and blessing. Help us to lay that down before you. Help us to lay our children and our desire for children. Help us to lay that down before you and say, you, Jesus, are better and you are enough. Lord, help me to, I know whenever you talk about family, it, it, it's, it's particularly uh, hurtful for some, difficult for some. Help me to balance truth and grace um, as I preach about what is so sensitive for us and so hurtful for us. Comfort those, Lord. In particular, I feel burdened for those uh, who are uh, come from broken homes or are in the middle of a broken situation. I pray you would bring comfort to um, them in particular. They might receive your word and not crush them, but 
but convict where it needs to convict, but comfort also in all things. Now bless the preaching of your word. We trust you with it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I began the conference last week, uh, if you were here or at our main campus, uh, by challenging the whole focus on the family movement that has largely informed evangelicalism in America for the past uh, few decades. And I talked about um, how, to me, that movement, and, and, and has many good things about it, a um, lot of wonderful work and resources have come out of that. Uh, but uh, as I said last week, that movement has proven largely uh, counterproductive in many ways, not just in its um, social efforts, but really in its discipleship efforts. And I said that I think that's because there's two flaws. And last week, um, we looked at the first flaw, and it's this. When we say focus on the family, the first question we have to ask is whose family are we focusing on here? Um, because what happened with the movement is it turned into uh, largely a cultural obsession movement uh, focused on their families and not ours, obsessing over the downfall of family and culture while ignoring the downfall of our own families. And so my challenge was, hey, how about we focus on our families and spend the week uh, this week doing just that? And we've done that. We've done that together, and it's been good and fruitful. Now, I want to conclude our conference with the second flaw that I think is a part of this whole concept, and it's the entire premise itself. Focus on the family. Whoever said that was a good idea? Certainly not your Bible. You can search your Bible throughout, and nowhere are you going to find the command for you to, with this kind of singular focus, focus on the family. Idolatry is a good thing loved too much. Good things treated as ultimate things. And unfortunately, when we treat something, when we treat something good as if it is something ultimate, then we end up ruining its goodness. I want to suggest that this is what we have done to our families. We have ruined family by idolizing family. So strangely, perhaps the best advice we can give you at the end of this conference on family is that you really do need to love your family less. Focus on the family. In our verse this evening, Jesus is actually going to tell us to do the opposite. And I think therein will be the key. And here's how he's going to tell us. We're going to discover two things in what he has to say here. The death of the family and the resurrection of the family. Let's look at each of those. The death of the family. Look at verse 25. And this first thing here introduces, introduces the passage. Now great crowds accompanied him. Jesus is in the popular phase of his ministry. At first, Jesus was an incredibly popular figure, and, and people were swarming to him. And he amassed a huge following wherever he went. But Jesus isn't into the celebrity preacher thing. And so he goes into this lesson, and this is where our passage would go if we kept on reading. He goes into this lesson on counting the cost. 
He wants them to know that if they choose to follow him, they need to be sure that they know what they are signing up for. And what they are signing up for is the cross. You do know that, right? To follow Jesus, you are signing up for the cross. The death of everything you hold dear. And the first thing that Jesus nails to the cross is the biggest one for their culture and context. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's extreme language. Now let me clear up the hate speech there, the hate language there. Hate speech is so loaded. Hate language here. Because that's obviously the stumbling block of the text. Of course, we know that Jesus, who commands us to love our enemies, is not calling for hatred of spouse and children and parents. Jesus is not into hate, and we know this about him. Instead, he's using a technique. Um, he's using a teaching technique of hyperbole to make a point. This is hyperbole is when you state something extreme so as to um, hammer home the point. So to speak, and Jesus uses that. That technique is still used by teachers today. And the point that he's trying to make here is one of preeminence. Jesus is saying to this large crowd, if you want to follow me, then let me be really clear. I must be preeminent in your life. So preeminent that it looks like you despise everything else in comparison to me. To follow Jesus is the choice to love Jesus so much that in comparison it makes it look like you hate everything else. That's what he's saying. This is what it means when he says to us, pick up your cross. You're going to have to die to everything if you want to live for me. And just to show the crowds how serious he is about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, he presses in on what they hold most dear. It is very difficult for Americans to appreciate how important family was to this culture and still is to many traditional cultures in um, Asia and um, Middle East and Africa and so forth. Um, but definitely an ancient culture. The family is everything. Imagine the security that you get from a savings and retirement account, plus the significance you get from your career or calling or impact on the world, plus the reputation you get from uh, social media and, and other forms of promotion, plus the joy you get from your hobby, plus the intimacy you get from your friendships, plus the safety you get from your government, and combine all of that into one, and that's the weight and significance of the family for most people in ancient culture. It was everything. It was the only thing they had. Therefore, family was far and away the reigning idol of the day. And this is why Jesus is so, he's so fierce against family in the Gospels. Harsh words, some of his harshest words. Honestly, if you, if you read through the Gospels and just read what Jesus has to say about family, it's tough to find him saying anything positive. Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come, and some of you have discovered this in the most deep, difficult ways. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, 
And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Listen, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter are children. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 8, Luke 9, same story. Jesus says to a man, he says, I want you to follow me. And the man says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, in a culture where family was everything, the highest honor was for the son to bury the father. Um, that was the greatest duty of a son's life. And literally, they lived for that moment. It, it served as kind of a ritual of patriarchal transition. So he says, so, okay, I want to follow you, Jesus. But first let me bury my father. This is what Jesus says to him. Let the, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. But Jesus practiced himself what he preached. In Matthew 12, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd so great that his mother and siblings can't get to him. And so they send word up through the crowd asking to speak to him. Now, again, in ancient culture, when mama needs you, you come. When, when mama calls, you, you stop everything to answer that call. But listen to his response. Hey, your mother and brothers are calling for you. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brother, brother, mother, sister. It's amazing, culturally speaking. I mean, this is, this is Mary, right? This is who the Catholics exalt and venerate. She needs to talk to you. She can wait. I'm with my mother and brothers and sisters. What does Jesus have against the family? What's his problem with the family? The answer is nothing. As we saw last week, he himself designed family, and he designed it as the highest glory of all creation. No one has a higher view of family than Jesus. But what he doesn't like and what he will relentlessly attack is the idolatry of family. Now again, in many ways we cannot relate to this, but I would say this. The closest comparison Western individualistic culture has to ancient traditional culture is American evangelicalism. The closest, and some of you grew up in this context. Many of you probably grew up in Southern Christian context, evangelical context, so you know what I'm talking about here. The closest America gets to ancient traditional culture is the subculture of American evangelicalism, where family is everything. As I said last week, over the past 30 years, our little subculture has been shaped by the focus on the family movement, and we've done a pretty good job at it. I pastor a church, I said this to the main campus this morning, I pastor a church of people who have sufficiently focused on their families. And yet so many of our families lay in ruins. How? How could we have focused on the family? We who attend the conferences who read the marriage and parenting books, who were raised by the people who read the parenting books, who take families to church and Sunday school, who were brought to Sunday school and church, who follow the programs and the systems, who were raised in the programs and the systems, who teach the programs and the systems. We who have poured so much time and resources focusing on our families, how have we lost our families? Because Jesus never told you to focus on your family. Jesus says, hate your family and focus on me. 
Let's just call it what it is. We haven't been focusing on our families. We've been making graven images. We've been loving our families more than our God. And you can't just, if you're younger, you can't just cast that at your parents. Saying, yes, I know, I've been the victim of their idolatry. I, I, I bet you have idolized their opinion, their approval. And I bet you idolize the thought of creating your own little graven image family. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is, is idolatry. We've been loving our families more than God. We've been loving spouse more than God or the hope of spouse more than God. We've been loving our children more than God or the hope of children more than God. And the consequences of that idolatry is the same as every idolatry. When we idolize something, it ruins both us and our idol. When we make an idol of parents, spouse, or children, not only will that idolatry crush us, it will crush them. And so in love... Jesus says, love me instead. Focus on me with such singular preeminence that it will actually look like you hate your family in comparison to how much you love me. We need to unfocus on the family and focus on our God. We need to repent of this clean, acceptable, baptized form of idolatry within evangelicalism where it's actually even celebrated. The more you could be more the more family obsessed you can become, the greater. It's so clean and acceptable and celebrated, but we need to repent of it and name it as the wickedness that it is. It's time to let your family go and follow Jesus. But here's what you'll discover. On the other side of family's death comes resurrection. If you will heed Jesus, if you will die to family, family will be resurrected. Let's look at that. Verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So this only begs the question then, what if I do choose? If I am not willing to do this and I can't be your disciple, what if I am willing to do this? What if I do choose to hate my family the way he's speaking of it here? If I cannot be your disciple, if I don't hate my family, then what if I make the difficult choice to die to my family for you, Jesus? To love you more than my family. What do I get? Well, you get Jesus. That's it. That's all he's promising here. You get to be his disciple. He's promising nothing else except that you get to be His. If you will do this, then you get to be a disciple of Jesus. So the ultimate question is going to be whether Jesus is worth it, right? We have to lay our families before Jesus and say, is He worth this? Is Jesus better than family? And we'll get to that question at the close. But I do want to explore this concept. How dying to family... To follow Jesus will actually resurrect family in its truest way. Notice in verse 26 how even ourselves are included in the death. He, 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 he mentions every single member of the family. You have to hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister. And you say, well, that covers it. Yeah, except for one more member of the family, and that's me. And he says, yes, even your own life has to be hated. You too have to die here. 
And we know this about Christ already in his discipleship when he famously said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, take up the instrument of execution. Let him take up the cruciform path and follow me. You have to die to yourself to follow Jesus. But then Jesus says this, whoever wishes to gain his life, lose it. Whoever loses his life, for my sake, will gain it. Here's the paradox of the cost of discipleship in Christian faith. If you die, then you will actually discover what it truly means to live. Stating it differently. If you live for yourself, you will kill yourself. But if you die to yourself and live for Jesus, you will finally come alive. Now, Jesus includes my death in this verse, which means that same principle applies to family. If you love your family preeminently, then in reality you are hating your family and you are hurting them, I might add. Accordingly, by hating them, you love them. Doing hate the way Jesus is defining it here. Find hate in proportion to love for Jesus. If you choose not to love them preeminently, then you are choosing to love them rightly. So, you die to family to be a disciple of Jesus, only to see that the discipleship of Jesus actually resurrects family the way Jesus designed family. If you choose Jesus over family, then what happens is family actually gets properly reordered. The classic illustration of, of idolatry is, is it's like our solar system. If the earth were at the center of our solar system, the entire system would uh, fly into chaos and be destroyed because the earth doesn't have the size or weight, gravitas, to hold the system in balance. But the sun at the center of the system does, and the system works perfectly orbiting around the weight of that massive star. Well, if you view your life like a solar system, then idolatry is replacing the sun with a planet. And that's what our lives, that's why our lives are a chaotic, destructive mess. Family idolatry puts the family at the center of your life and ruins the whole thing. What Jesus is asking you to do in our verse is to put him in the center of your solar system. And the sun, S-O-N, at the center of your system works. And makes everything else work. And this is why dying to our idols and living for Jesus actually rescues that which we were idolizing and feared to lose. Putting to death your idol in, in the choice of Jesus actually rescues that idol which you once feared to lose. So let's flesh this out, okay? Let's talk practical. Jesus is expansive here, right? In verse 26, nothing that's left out. So let's briefly, can, can we just consider each and, sh and see how this works out? Just go through the list. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother. <coughs> what happens when you live in bondage to your parents? What happens when you live to please them and earn their approval, blessing, and love? What happens when you spend your life trying to get them to say, I'm proud of you, even if they're dead, you're still doing it? 
what happens is that it will crush you. Sometimes you won't ever get it at all. They're just not the parents that are going to give you what you're dying for, what you're, you're laboring so hard to prove to them, and they're just never going to say, good job, I'm proud of you, I love you, I'm into you, I bless you. I don't know, parents wouldn't probably say that, but you know what I mean. Like They're, they're never going to, they're never in, in, you're never going to feel their blessing and love. But even maybe you grew up with great parents. Even if they do bless you and approve you and, and, and are proud of you and affirm you, what you've discovered that it's not enough. So it could turn into this endless game of trying to get their blessing and they're giving it, but I need more. I need more from you. Your blessing's not enough. But what happens when you let that dream die and discover the approval and blessing of Jesus, what happens is you are free. You don't need them. So you are free to properly love and honor them. You're not owned by their failures and their sins against you. you are not, you're not held in captive by their abuse. So you're free to forgive them of their failures and discover a tenderness that hasn't been there for as long as you can remember. You don't have to have their approval, so you're free to disappoint them, not collapse under their expectations. You're free, how's this? You're free to actually create some boundaries. Wouldn't that be crazy? You're free to tell them no. You're free to disappoint. Because Jesus is at the center, not their approval anymore. He says, husband and wife. What happens when you ask your spouse to complete and satisfy you the way Jesus is intended to complete and satisfy you? Some of you are here. Some of you, I can already tell it's going. You can, you, you'll know if you have a problem with this now if you're, if you're idolizing the hope of spouse now. So the same idolatry um, that we bring into our marriages will, will, will continue on. So um, those, those who struggle like me... Um, um, of living off the approval of Abby and needing her to be something, um, you'll know you'll, you have my problem too if, you, if you're spending your singleness years um, unsatisfied without a spouse. Here's what happens. What happens when you ask your spouse to complete and satisfy you is it ruins your marriage. You can't satisfy her. She can't satisfy you. You are both terrible gods for each other. And so your marriage is full of disappointment and bitterness and resentment and at times all-out vicious hatred that your spouse has not been for you what your idolatry demands they be. Your spouse will never be for you what your idolatry of them demands they be. And so you end up hating your spouse for not being your God that you need. But... What happens when you discover the completion and satisfaction you long for in Jesus? Your marriage is free. You don't need their love. So you are free to love them rightly. Their criticism doesn't enrage you. Their mistakes don't ruin you. Their fickle affection and love does not destroy you. You have Jesus, so you don't have to have your spouse. And when you don't have to have your spouse, you are able to love your spouse really well. You're actually to be able to survive in a one-sided, disappointing marriage. 
I have Jesus. I can love the spouse that doesn't love Jesus with me. I have Jesus. I can love the spouse that just will not engage me. I love Jesus. I can love the spouse that will not pursue me. I love Jesus. I can handle a disappointing spouse. You can't say that if your spouse is your God. How about children? Can you believe Jesus says we have to hate our children? I mean, as a parent, that's what this, this week I just could not get over. Jesus, tender towards children, loves children more than anybody who's ever lived, looks at parents and says you're going to have to hate them. What happens when you ask your children to be your pride and joy, as we like to say? What happens when their performance becomes your performance? What happens when their decisions become your success and your failures? What happens when my identity is so wrapped up in my children? What happens is we hurt them and they hate us. Whatever you need them to do and to be because of what it says about you, they typically will do the opposite. <laughs> and sadly, that includes your Christianity. If you need them to be the good Christian kid because of what it says about you, they're going to rebel against Christianity and say, forget you and forget that. What you must have from them is typically the very place that they will rebel. What you demand them to be because you need them to be that is typically the very place where they will rebel. Okay, but what happens if the kids are not the center of your solar system? What happens when you renounce the idolatry of children and say, Jesus, you stand supreme in my life. When you find your identity in Christ, not your kids, Jesus is your pride and joy. Jesus is your boast. He is your success. He is your identity. Well, suddenly your children are set free. And they're, they're dying for you to do this for them. Your children are set free from the oppressiveness of your idolatry. And so is your parenting, by the way. You can start love, loving them rightly, not manipulatively. You can discipline them right. You can discipline them. It's a great feeling to not care what your kids think of you. To discipline them and say, I don't care if you hate me. Go hate me, but just go hate me in your room. <laughs> or some of you with older kids, we're getting into, that, getting into that stage someday. It's a glorious thing when you can say, I don't have to enable you anymore. Bye-bye. Bye. I don't have to have you. I don't need you to love me. And it's enabling you the way I am needing that. Bye. Go make your mistakes. You can love them rightly. You can discipline them rightly. You can let them make their own decisions. They will be free to succeed or fail, knowing that you don't need them to succeed, nor will you be crushed by their failures. They will become young men and women that they were designed to be by God, not expected to be by you. And most of all, they will love you and love the Jesus who is so glorious to you that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you actually love him more than even them. You want your kids to love Jesus. They need to know you love Jesus a lot more than them. If you want your kids to hate you, then need them to love you. 
If you want your kids to hate your God, then need them to love your God. Or you can say, whether you love me or not, whether you love Jesus or not, it matters not to me. I love Jesus. I have him. All is well in my universe. They'll love that Jesus. And they'll love you. You see how this works. Focus on the family proves counterproductive in the end. It's not loving your family. It's loving yourself and demanding that your family do the same. So Jesus says, hate them. Hate your family for me that you might learn what it looks like to rightly love your family. So now, here I am at the end of a week where we've been doing nonstop family saying this. The best thing you can do for the life of your family is die to the life of your family. The best way to focus on your family is to unfocus on your family. Four, whoever wishes to save his family must lose it. But whoever loses his family for Christ's sake will save it. So application purpose here. I want you to choose one from this verse, okay? Jesus is expansive here, so that means that your issue is in this verse. Look at the expanse. He intentionally covers it all. Parents, spouse, children, siblings. I want you to answer the question, which one is the greatest threat to my love for Jesus? I do not want to allow this to stay general. That will not do well for anybody. I want specificity. Who in your family is competing most with Jesus? Bring that to your community groups, your friends. Confess it to them. Ask them to help you imagine what repentance might look like. It might be a tough conversation. It might be the decision to stop enabling someone because you fear the costs of firmness. It might be apologizing to them for how your idolatry has hurt them. It might be finally forgiving them for what they did to you. It might be new boundaries. It might be saying goodbye. Who in your family is the greatest threat to Jesus? And then you are going to have to decide whether Jesus is better than that person. At the end of the day, that is the question of the text. We don't follow Jesus because it will fix our family. That's just asking Jesus to serve our idol. No, we follow Jesus because Jesus is worth it. We choose Jesus over family because we actually believe that Jesus is better than family. So is Jesus better? Is Jesus better than your parents' approval? Is Jesus better than your spouse's love or the dream of a spouse's love? Is Jesus better than your children's success? Is Jesus better? You know the answer, but perhaps it would feel good to hear a pastor tell you again. Jesus is worth it. 10,000 times over, Jesus is better than family. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you, uh, if you would not be one who says Jesus is better, preeminent in my life, um, I want you to know that family is a very powerful thing. Even, our, even in our culture that doesn't put much of a priority on family, it cannot escape the power of family. And you are suffering because of your family. You have hurt and you have been hurt most deeply by your family. And what I would like to invite you to discover tonight is an unconventional invitation into Jesus. It's not just um, an individual, not just an individualistic 
um, decision to walk an aisle and say a prayer. It is step out of your family and into Jesus. Jesus will be for you what your family has not been and cannot be. It might heal your family. You might lose your family. But either way, you will say he is worth it indeed. And that choice is worth it because no one can love you like Jesus loves you. Jesus says in our verse that if anyone wants to come after him, he will have to hate even his own life. Well, beloved, Jesus wanted to come after you, so it meant that he would have to hate even his own life. And he did. So in love, so enraptured was Jesus that he came after you, and he gave up his life to call you his own. He died to include you into his family. Why? Because love. This is just who he is. A love that we know in part now, but we shall know in full someday. The Bible begins with the marriage, as we saw last week in Genesis 2. The Bible ends with the marriage, the eternal marriage of Christ to his bride, the church. The day of consummation, the day of fulfillment, the day that creation is longing for is called a wedding feast. And it is the wedding feast of the Lamb who has been saving himself for his bride. That's you, his church. And when the eternal family begins, all temporary family will pass away. Jesus says there is no marriage or giving of marriage at the consummation. And that's true. The shadows will give way to substance. I will lay down Abby at the feet of Jesus and say you're better. I will lay down my children at the feet of Jesus and my grandchildren and the generations to come and say, you're better. What we have tasted in part through our earthly family, and yes, we have tasted so much goodness, but what we have tasted in part through our earthly family, we will feast upon in fullness through our eternal family. And we will say for eternity on, the choice to unfocus on the family, on father, mother, siblings, husband, wife, children, to unfocus on our family that we might focus on our Jesus, to hate our family that we might love Jesus, was in the end eternally worth it. Let me pray. Lord, help us to, uh, to be, help us to be um, comforted as we talk about what is so painful for so many of us. Um, yes, convict and challenge, but Lord, um, be gentle as you do. A bruise reed you will not break. A flickering candle you will not blow out. And so be gentle with us, Lord, as we repent. But yes, may we repent. Where we have loved the family more than you, we say sorry. And we turn again to you. And we say, Jesus, you're better. You're better than my parents' approval, which I've been living for. You're better than my spouse, which I'm living for or trying to find. You're better than children. You're better, Jesus. Forgive us that we haven't lived that out. But we, the people of God, are glad to say, yes, we love you more than them. Now assure us of your promises at this table of the family. Meet us here, Jesus, our bridegroom, we pray. Amen.